Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Labor Day weekend. Look, we know there's all kinds of craziness going on right now. Fires in Tahoe, Hurricane Ida-related cleanup efforts in New York and New Jersey and Louisiana, where the scenes of destruction and debris are frankly hard to process. There's also the fact that regulators in Texas just proved themselves completely twisted, and companies are staying completely silent on the state's new abortion law. Put another way, it's been a terrible week for a lot of people, so we feel Odd wishing you a fun weekend, but we will wish you a safe weekend. And also to let you know if you feel you are going bananas in all this madness, we're with you 100% as the kids say. Now, on to this week's episode with featured guest Mark Suster, who has been a general partner with Upfront Ventures in Los Angeles, and in the words of one of his newest colleagues, someone who really put LA on the venture map, which we happen to think is true. Suster's firm is, we suspect, gearing up to announce some new funds this year, and ahead of that news, which matters less to us than to founders, we wanted to find out how he's feeling about a range of issues and companies, from Bird, which represents Upfront's biggest investment to date, to Tiger Global. We really enjoy talking with him. We think you'll enjoy hearing from him. But up first, the news. It wasn't exactly surprising to learn that a peer-reviewed study concluded that known publishers of misinformation generated more engagement on Facebook than reputable sites. What was surprising was the scale. Researchers at New York University and the Université grenoble Alpes found that from August 2020 to January 2021, fake news sites received six times the amount of likes, shares, and interactions on the platform as legitimate news sources such as CNN or the World Health Organization. Facebook recently received a torrent of criticism for trying to kick one of these same NYU researchers off of its platform, and it seems determined to fight back rather than brook any criticism of its algorithms. But numbers don't lie, and neither do the markets. Facebook stock is up 40% for the year. The Wall Street Journal reported today that the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating Uniswap Labs, the main developer of the world's largest decentralized exchange for cryptocurrencies. Decentralized exchanges allow users to trade cryptocurrencies without the need for a central server. Because there is no central authority, developers of these exchanges have long argued that they are not subject to SEC regulation. Nevertheless, the amount of money that is passing through these exchanges must have caught the SEC's eye. Uniswap's trading volume in August was approximately $39 billion, and the platform has already generated $1 billion in fees. In addition, Uniswap's currency, the UNI, is worth almost $30 billion, with 21% reserved for insiders. Earlier this summer, holders of Uniswap tokens contributed almost $20 million in UNI tokens to educate the public about DeFi or decentralized finance. Too little, too late? We shall see. A federal judge has ruled that artificial intelligence cannot be listed as an inventor on U.S. patents. U.S. District Judge Leonie Brinkima in Alexandria, Virginia, wrote in her opinion that only natural persons can be credited with inventions. If all of this sounds a bit academic, it is. Ryan Abbott, a law professor at the University of Surrey, has launched the Artificial Inventor Project in order to gain more respect for creative neural systems. He argues that a creative AI paradigm called Davis 
was actually sentient when it, quote, invented a beverage container and a, quote, device for attracting enhanced attention. Although judges in Australia and South Africa have looked favorably on this argument, Judge Brinkema was unmoved, as were courts in the UK and the EU. Abbott and Davis are appealing the rulings. Up next, our interview with Mark Suster of Upfront Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's almost that time of the year when startup followers from around the world gather at TechCrunch's annual conference, Disrupt, which will be held virtually again this year on September 21st to 23rd. Join the community to expand your horizons and your network with founders and CEOs from companies like Coinbase, Dapper Labs, GitLab, Canva, and more. Attend for less than $100, or you can get a free innovator pass if you are one of the first 10 people to register with promo code STRICTLYVCFREE at TechCrunch.com forward slash disrupt. But you'll want to hurry. It's a first come first serve offer. And once they're gone, they're gone. And now our interview with Mark Suster of Upfront Ventures, a former entrepreneur who sold his last company to Salesforce in 2007 and who stuck around just six months before teaming up with Eve's Sisteron and becoming a venture capitalist. The firm, formerly known as GRP Partners, was not a known brand at the time, and neither was Suster. But through sheer force of personality, he long ago made Upfront a firm to watch. He and his colleagues have also made their annual event, Upfront Summit, an experience that a whole lot of people now look forward to participating in every year. We talked with Suster yesterday about a lot of things, including his aversion to today's Series A rounds. Here's that conversation. Mark, it's so great to see you. It's been a long time. And I was going to say, you look like a different person, though. I mean, you've <laughs> been sort of watching from afar your fitness yeah. journey, but what happened? I mean, you look like you're about 30 pounds lighter, at least. I am 60 pounds lighter. 60 pounds. Wow. Yeah. And it's embarrassing to say that one would have 60 pounds to lose, but I got hyper-focused on why people gain weight. And I think particularly for men, when you're young as a woman, and I don't pretend to speak for women, but as I understand it, there's a lot of pressure around what do you eat? And I think that places some neuroses that's unfair on women. For men, when you are in your 20s and 30s and 40s, the thought process is get fit, work out. Well, it turns out that's not the way to lose weight. The more you work out, the more you eat, and people are increasing their calories when they're working out more than the calories they're burning from working out. So I put a huge emphasis into what goes into my body, and the weight just fell off. Great. So is it like keto, or did you? No, did I don't. I think I think this is the problem again for anyone dieting, but for men in particular, we grasp on these diet plans like keto. And we do incredible for two, three months, but they're not sustainable. Right. So all I simply do is track every single day in my fitness pal what I eat. It's not neurotic. It's super easy to do. I also used an app called Noom for a while. And Noom helps you focus on the psychology of why you overeat or make bad choices. My fitness pal is better for me now where it's just about recording. I did use a continuous glucose monitor for a long time, which I love. There's a NutriSense or levels, and it helps you focus on the quality of what you're eating and what that does to your metabolic health. But really, it's my fitness pal. When I went and ate this morning, I had a daily harvest bowl, and I just type in daily harvest, chocolate and cherry, 
and it pops Ooh. up 260 calories. And then I type almond milk and it pops up 20 calories and done that easy. It doesn't sound easy, <laughs> but the results are great. You look wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. So Mark, tell me what is happening with Upfront. You've got a flagship fund. You've got a growth fund. What are you investing right now? Are you going to announce a new fund any second? So listen, Connie, the main thing I will tell you is, first of all, Upfront Ventures has been around for 25 years. So we're not a new fund. We've been around for a while. We've been investing for a long time. It used to be 10 years ago, I could write a three, four, $5 million check, and that was called an A round. And that company probably had raised a few hundred thousand dollars from angels, maybe some seed funds, but seed funds didn't really exist. They weren't that prolific 10 years ago. And I could get a lot of data on how companies were doing. I could talk to customers. I could look at retention of customers. I could look at their marginal cost structure and whether they had high gross margins. I could talk to references of the founders and I could take my time. And that was called an A round. And we all took board seats and you exited most of your companies in a seven to 10 year time horizon. Fast forward a decade. $5 $5 million is a seed round. A small seed round. Yeah. And now there's pre-seed rounds. And now there's some people are starting to call it day zero companies. So there's day zero, there's pre-seed, there's seed, there's seed extension, there's A, there's A prime, there's B. Right. So much money is now going into this industry that it's really changing the industry. So the way that I think of upfront now is we're really a seed investor. Now, what that means is I'm not actually doing anything differently than I did 10 years ago in terms of deploying capital, getting involved with founders very early, helping you build your executive team, set your strategy, working on pricing and which market are you in and uh, sequence of how you launch products and how to raise downstream capital. But what the pressure on me is I now need to make faster decisions. I need to be involved with your company earlier. So I'm taking a little more risk in terms of not being able to look at customers. You may not even have customers. And so we really are a seed investor. But how I would define us as slightly different than what you may perceive a seed fund to be is I like to call a seed A. So I might write a $3.5 million check for your seed round out of whatever you raise, four or $5 million. But I'm also going to write a three and a half million dollars when you get to the A round. And so I'll be $7 million in after -hmm. your A round, but I've been able to stage it in a way where I'm mostly doing what people today call a seed. So I like to think of us as a seed A investor, but Mm -hmm. really we're doing seed. And then I'm a little bit lighter on AB and I'm leaning in heavily now when you hit your growth round with this growth fund, because now I have the dollars to deploy. And in our biggest companies, we have more than $50 million invested. You have $50 million invested from upfront in some companies. In some of our biggest companies. So Bird, Rally. Our biggest companies now that we have deployed money from our seed program and our growth program, Bird, which filed to go public through a SPAC. Appeal Sciences. They have the biodegradable packaging on fruit to preserve the life. Yes. So what they do is they take organic materials that come from plants. They create a film that seals in moisture and prevents oxidation for plant and vegetable. They extend the life 
for 30 days with no refrigeration required, no herbicides, no pesticides. And that both increases the output and yield of fruit and vegetable, but also reduces water consumption. But this is a great case study, which is our first check was 200,000. We backed James right when he finished his PhD program. We then leaned in with a five and a half million dollar check. We then introduced them to Andreessen Horowitz after us. And we did that pre-seed round. We did the seed round. We did the Andreessen round. Then they raised from Viking. We did that round. Then they raised from GIC out of Singapore. We did that round. And they just raised money. And it's publicly announced from Tomasic at almost a $2.4 billion valuation. But we were in at a $5 million valuation. How did you find James when he was just graduating with his PhD? So our working model is we pick practice areas that we go deep in and we decide in 2014 that sustainability was going to be an incredibly important investment thesis, and we also care about it as humans. My partner, Eve, started his career as an investor for Carrefour, and Carrefour is the Walmart for the rest of the world, started in France. And so he came to the United States, he's French, to invest in U.S. retail supply chains and invested in some tiny companies called Costco, Starbucks, Office Depot, PetSmart, you name it. And that's what led to the creation of what's now Upfront Ventures in 1996, the move from big box retail to the internet and backing internet supply chains, financial services, retail innovation, marketplaces. But he came from a grocery supply chain background And so investing in sustainability, not just for fruit and vegetables, but meat and other produce is his background. So he's focused now full time on sustainability. And it's not just appeal sciences. We have a company called Insect, which is like the word insect, but with a Y. Our first check into Insect was $27 million. We invested from our seed fund and our growth fund simultaneously. What they do is they use robotics to grow worms in vertical farms as a massive output to feed fish in fish farms to create more sustainable fish and shrimp populations around the world. And as of 2022, it'll be the world's largest producer of worms. But again, how do you find these guys? Are you hovering around university campuses? It's a great question. I spent a lot of time pre-COVID with Professor Jared Diamond, and he is UCLA professor, considered one of the hundred best thinkers in America, incredibly smart and passionate and compassionate. He started talking to me about the problem of fish sustainability. And part of his research was that fish can't digest carbohydrates. And so the fact that in fish farms, they were feeding carbohydrates to fish meant that fish mortality went up. And as a result of that, they were starting to give amino acids and use antibiotics with fish the same way that we've treated our cattle populations and chickens in the United States. And that's not a sustainable way to scale our protein needs around the world. So I had this backdrop of this problem that exists. I used to live and work in Europe. I lived there for 11 years. I lived and worked in France. And so I travel out there regularly. Yves is French. He travels out there regularly. So I was out there working with the French government all the way up to Macron, trying to attract more capital to invest in French companies. And we do a lot of cross-border in Europe and the U.S., and particularly France and the U.S., And so I went as a delegation and met with a whole bunch of startups. And I came across Antoine, who is the founder of this company, Insect. 
And he told me he was inspired by Professor Diamond's work to do this company. He was describing to me what he did. And I said, oh, my God, this is the company we've been looking for. So I called Eve. Eve flew out to France the next month, toured their factory. We did all the economic research and the science research and said, this is the one. Is Jared affiliated with the startup at all? Did you connect those two? I did connect them at the Upfront Summit in Pasadena. I connected them because Jared Diamond is a hero for a lot of us. And so to connect him with this founder who was inspired by his work, I'm sure was great on both sides. But I do work very closely, I should tell you, with Professor Diamond's son. Josh Diamond has a fantastic VC fund called Walkabout VC that is backing fintech companies. And so we work a lot with him. He's equally as smart and ambitious as his father. But anyway, that was the inspiration for that company. But the real thing that's happening is I think we really now think about investing in a barbell. We want to be super early, like the earliest capital will even take a risk on you want to leave your company and we've known you. Let's say we knew you at Riot Games. We knew you at Snapchat. We knew you at Facebook. We knew you when you were working at Stripe or PayPal, wherever. We will back you at formation at day zero. And then we want to skip the expensive rounds and come in later. So does that mean you invest at a valuation or is, is it a priced round when you invest at Seed? So I think there's a lot of misnomers that rounds themselves aren't priced. Almost every round is priced. People just think they're not priced. So what I think the question is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are we willing to do convertible notes? Are we willing to do safe notes? Are we willing to do all this stuff? And the answer is yes. Now, most convertible notes, most safe notes, they don't fix a price, but they have a cap. And the cap is the price. What I always try to tell founders is what you have is a maximum price with no minimum price. If you were willing to just raise capital and set the price, you'd have a max anim and it's better for you. But for whatever reason, a generation of founders have been convinced that it's better not to set a price, which really what they're doing is setting a max, not a min. And I'm not going to have that argument again. People don't understand it. But the reality is we will do convertible notes. We will do saves. We would not fund something that had no maximum price. What was the rationale between investing in insect from both your seed and your growth funds at the same time? Almost everything we do in the seed program is super early stage. What was unique in the case of insect was they had done three and a half years of trials already with the largest fish meal provider in Europe called Scredding. And they had already proven that they could reduce fish mortality without impacting the taste of the fish. So the stage that we were investing was slightly later stage, but it had more validation. And we were able to talk to Scredding and other customers, pet companies that are using part of their protein sources and validate that they were going to purchase a lot of products. So we felt more comfort moving in a larger dollar amount. And it was slightly later stage. I should tell you that after we wrote the check, within a year, they had booked $100 million of contracts from almost zero. So moving in slightly later stage, sometimes we will do that, but it's not the norm for what we do. Mark, just curious, 90% of the people that I talk with are either doing really late stage stuff. We interviewed John Cordgold recently of Blackstone or very, very early stage investors. What is the aversion to series B rounds or C or mid-stage? Well, listen, I would never rule out any round, but what I will tell you is that the new A round, which I maybe have an aversion to, is call it 20 to $30 million. So what does that imply? 
Well, that implies that you're paying a 50, 60, 70 million dollar valuation. It implies that to really drive fund level returns, you have to have five, 10, 15 billion dollar outcomes or greater. Now, it just happens that the world is producing more of those. And so you now have, I guess it's 11 companies in the United States that are pure startups that are worth more than $10 billion. I get it. There's more of those being created. But if you want to be writing $20 million A rounds where you're taking that level of risk, you have to have a $700, $800 million fund. And I don't want to be in that business, not because I think it's bad, but it's a different business and it implies different skills and different fund size. And what I know that Upfront is unique at doing is working with founders at the earliest stages of their company, helping you build the team, set your strategy, figure out how to launch a product, dealing with press, dealing with how to define your brand, especially for first time founders. And we know how to do that. We've been doing that for 25 years. And I think we're uniquely good at that. We're not the only firm that can do that, but that's our unique skill set. So as the market has moved towards providing larger amounts of capital with businesses that are not yet proven, we just find that's not the fund we want to build. So instead of pooling all my capital into one big vehicle, we have two separate vehicles with different LP bases. And I can do the seed investment the same way we've done for 25 years but I can write 50, 60, $70 million as you scale. And so again, quickly, I don't think we talked about what size funds you're investing right now. Yeah. So our third growth fund is $200 million. This is from 2019? Yes. Okay. And it is a more concentrated vehicle. So our seed program will write 30, 35 investments. When did you close your last seed fund? We closed officially our last seed fund in 2018. Okay. I am legally not allowed to talk about our current activities, but if you look at the history, we raised a fund in 2009, 2012, 2015, 2018. So there's a cadence. Every three years since 2009, most venture funds are now raising, if not every year, every 18 months. And I think the pace of deployment of capital on that is going to meet challenges. Now, in a bull market, which we've been in in the tech sector since 2009, you don't notice it. If we have a correction, I think people who are more time diverse investing across multiple years will perform better. History has said that. So if you do the math every three years, it doesn't take a mathematician to know when we're likely going to announce new funds, but I'm legally prohibited from doing No, and that's fine. I just didn't know if I'd missed anything. Okay. So we're talking about the fact that there's so much money flooding into the industry, including because funds are raising every year or so. You said you don't have as much time to think about deals as you once did. I talked to Fika Ventures last week, and they said that in some cases, founders are getting term sheets following a 30-minute conversation with investors, which sounds crazy, et cetera. things about that, Connie. One is we don't do that. So if you're looking for that, you're calling the wrong firm. We don't have as much time to know if customers love your product. You may not even have customers, but please don't mistake that. We spend as much time as we can getting to know the founders. And we might know the founders for five years before they create a company. We might be the people egging them on to quit Disney and go create a company. Okay, so we really want to know the founder. 
But the bet that we're making is now more on the founder skills and vision than on customer adoption of a product. And that's really what's changed for us. I always tell founders, if someone is willing to fund you after a 30 minute meeting, that's a really bad trade for you as a founder. Why? Because if a fund is doing 35 investments or 50 investments or even 20 investments and they get it wrong because they didn't do due diligence, okay, well, they have 19 or 30 other investments. If you get it wrong and you chose an investor who's not helpful, not ethical, not leaning in, not supportive, not value add to you, you live with that. There's no divorce clause. You're going to be with that investor for the rest of your business. So I think it's smarter for founders to take your time. What do you think of Tiger? I think Tiger is investing at a different stage. And I think that's at a stage where they have chosen to be able to move faster. And founders are probably less worried about whether they make the right or wrong decision. I think Tiger has public activities and so might be able to stomach some portfolio losses in exchange for making sure they get in the winners and ride over into crossover fund. I'm not worried about Tiger's sustainability. I guess I'm wondering what you make of its impact on the industry. Is Tiger the new SoftBank? There certainly is a lot more capital being deployed at late stages, at valuations that are challenging people who don't have Tiger's model. No doubt about it. Net, net, I think that's good for our ecosystem. Is it sustainable long term? I don't know. We'll see. My bet would be no. But we'll see. But more capital going against entrepreneurs to create disruption, to create economic opportunities for society at large, I think is a net positive for everybody. And it's changing other people's business models. So Mark, enough of the optimism. What is wrong with the industry right now? I mean, honestly, this is the longest bull market. I keep wondering, like a lot of people, I've thought for the last five years, something's going to change. I thought with SoftBank was maybe stumbling. It was going to pull everybody back a little bit. Obviously, that didn't happen. What do you make of this? One thing I'm often asked is, is the market too frothy? Are valuations too high? Is there going to be a great reckoning? The answer is, yes, the market is too frothy. The valuations are not sustainable. On the other hand, the companies that work are becoming larger than they have ever in human history, faster than they have in human history, and are pushing the boundaries of the industries they impact more than ever in human history. Just look at COVID treatments. mRNA companies now have a global impact on health and well-being in a positive way by having this incredibly fast response to a virus that maybe 500 years ago would have wiped out 25% of the world population. If you look at Appeal Sciences, being able to tap into a billion dollars of capital to increase agricultural output is not something we ever would have been talking about 10 years ago. So you have to, as an investor, be able to hold two very conflicting ideas in your mind. On one side, it's Everything I'm writing is overvalued by definition and sometimes crazy overvalued. And the winners are going to be bigger than ever. I just have to make sure I'm in the winner. So if I'm building a portfolio approach, I may be wrong in some ways 
as long as I get into these deals, I am going to achieve great economic gain. And I believe that. And also, Marcus, since we you mentioned Bird, which has been very interesting to a broad audience for a long time, let's talk a little bit about SPACs. And I, I also am just curious about Bird specifically. So Bird had a tough year, unsurprisingly, with the pandemic. Nobody was out riding scooters. Now it's selling e-bikes, too. I understand that its business has rebounded, and then it's got this new very different business of rebranding bikes as bird bikes. What's going on there? And then relatedly, is this a company that could have gone public through a traditional IPO? I might slightly push back against the idea that they've had a really difficult year. February, March of 2020, the whole world shut down and we provide transportation services and nobody was being transported. So there's no doubt that there were challenges to their business. But let me point out some positives. If you think about the power of Bird, think about cars. And when cars were introduced to society in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, and there was this great big pushback about this new vehicle that was getting in the way of horses, getting in the way of people walking. And so any change, even if it's a net good, is going to get a lot of societal pushback. Look at what Bird is. It's a new transportation mode that is not using gas. It's fully electric. That is not taking up the space that cars take in society. That is not the cost of a car in society. So this new green transportation suddenly exists and it gets a lot of societal pushback. It just happens that young people love it and it is their preferred transportation mode. There have been bikes out on the streets in cities like Santa Monica forever and very few riders of these shared bike services. People chose this mode. They literally voted with their feet. But cities and older constituents are saying, wait a second, we don't want this new thing to exist. Well, what did the pandemic do? It made cities realize We need to provide transportation services where we're not stuffing a whole bunch of people on a bus together to pass viruses or on a subway system together to pass viruses. And so cities started embracing micromobility. All these cities that in the past, whether it's Paris, whether it's London, whether it's New York, that were pushing back against scooters existing, fully embraced them. And now they realize that if they want a carbon neutral or carbon negative future, They've got to get cars off the road. And it turns out they want more people living in urban environments and they've got to support more people means that they have to provide more green transportation that is not adding congestion cars and carbon output. So cities all around the world have embraced it. Consumers have chosen it because they don't want to be on buses. Then the question is, does the economic model work? And that was really what was challenged. The biggest change we made was we moved away from the idea that we have to operate these ourselves to, wait a second, we can find local operators where we provide the software, we provide the know-how, but then someone in Bordeaux who wants 50 or 100 or 500 units can go launch this and we don't have to go hire 25 employees in Bordeaux to serve that market. It's a franchise model now? I don't think that's the legal definition, but it works in a very similar way. Has Bird also changed the way that it operates with regard to governments? Is it now a little bit more sensitive to some of the legal regulations regarding scooters? Yes. The challenge is, though, government officials will tell you off the record, if you didn't do things the way you did them and just put scooters out there and let governments respond, we would always say no. 
So there is this tough juxtaposition of we know it came from Uber and Airbnb and then led to Bird and other companies where you've got to push the boundaries beyond where today's legislation is and force government to deal with change and consumer adoption. And they say, wait, we want these things. And then all of a sudden governments think, oh, crap, now we have to deal with this. And then slowly over time, you realize, wait a second, you push too far in these areas. These areas we as government are going to have to change. And hopefully the great shakeout of that is society benefits. So they're licensing their software to these smaller operators. Why this new branded bike offering? What's the thinking there? Well, let me start just with the idea that we provide a platform to local operators. The ability for me to innovate on technology and product, but allow local operators to deploy units is more cost effective. It's more profitable for us. It's also good for the local operator. And here's the thing. If I take 5,000 units in LA and I try to manage them myself, I might have a mid-level person in my organization who's in charge of getting as many out on the road and making sure they're repaired as fast as possible, but they don't really care if 8% of the units aren't on the road and take three days longer. If I have someone who owns a business and has 50 scooters and that's how they make their livelihood, they're going to make sure everything's repaired, everything is exactly where riders want it. So the invisible hand, the Adam Smith, is pushing way more efficiency. So what we found is mean time to repair went down massively. Number of units on the road went up massively. Units being in the right location where demand was went up massively. It turns out that economics work and capitalism works. Local operators wanting to make money are more efficient than central planning. And that was a great unlock in my mind from the model. Travis is a genius, one of the smartest people I've worked with as a scaled operator. But you've asked a lot about bikes, and I want to address that. Scooters are incredible for one to four miles. Scooters may not be the best transportation mechanism for mile four to mile 10. And what Bird aspires to be is a micro-mobility, clean transportation provider, not an e-scooter company. So to do that, you have to have other modes of transportation. So the question is, why are we not 50% bike, 50% scooter? To run a profitable business, you've got to be able to deploy these at scale, maintain them at scale, be able to innovate on the actual product, have the demand there. And I just think at one point, Travis said, I'm going to focus on being the most efficient at scooters and provide the highest quality, lowest mean time to repair, longest lasting unit. And now he's starting to experiment with other modes. I've seen some of their future non-bike modes of transportation. There's some incredible stuff that's coming down the line beyond stuff that you can even imagine today. Unicycles? Just kidding. Unicycles. <laughs> but let me just say, like, he thinks about future modes of transportation. And I think that's awesome. And I don't think the future is cars. Mark, we've kept you so long. We've talked about a lot of new trends that are sh shaping the industry. Everyone keeps telling me I've got to be covering more crypto, more crypto. I'm missing the boat on that. And I think that's probably true. What is your crypto strategy? Well, let me say this. I think it's important to think about, and I'm just parsing the words broader than crypto, which is blockchain and decentralized apps and crypto or cryptocurrency is just one instantiation of that. 
So I think in terms of centralization versus decentralization, and many of us who want to see a world in which consumers or individuals have more control and platforms have less control, are trying to think, how does that world exist? When my social network is locked in Facebook and locked in Twitter, and the social connections that I have are not portable and transportable to other places when the documents that I have stored in document companies are not as easily transportable. The internet is not as open as we imagined it would be when we were all excited for the internet to exist. So the great move towards decentralization is exactly that, which is how do we create apps that are not controlled by central units and platforms and allow them to exist? And blockchain is just one way of enabling that future. So I'm very long on it, but it's a 10, 15, 20-year build. So, Mark, you're focusing quite a bit on seed stage investments. You also have this growth side, which seems like it's very active as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your plans on the growth side? Here's what I think's happened on growth. You now have what I would call early growth and late growth. I can't compete in late growth. Late growth is... BlackRock and Fidelity and Tiger and Coachu with hundreds of millions of dollars at sovereign wealth funds. And what's really happened in the market is we've gone from a market where the best companies went public in six or eight years to the best companies go public in 12 to 14 years. They're staying private longer. Now that means there's way more opportunity for private investors like me, but I'm not writing $200 million checks or $500 million checks. So I don't play in late growth. I play in early growth. And let's call that $100 million to $500 million valuations. To do that, I need a different skill set. The skill set that Mark Suster brings to the table is I built and sold two SaaS companies from scratch. My partner, Greg Bettinelli, worked at eBay and then left to be the founding CMO of an e-commerce company that was acquired by Nordstrom for hundreds of millions of dollars. So he brings both marketplace, but also early stage operating experience. So he worked very closely with the GOAT team. We were the first big institutional investor in GOAT in helping them build a marketplace business that will go public next year. It's private market valuation, I think, is publicly known as $3.7 billion. We invested before they had a product. In fact, they had a different product. It wasn't selling sneakers and apparel. And so that's our core skill set. But the core skill set you need to fund at 100 to 500 million, it's way more quant driven. It's way more data driven. It's way more knowledge about how will this get an exit and what will be the exit valuation. So I needed a different skill set. So what I did is I went out to recruit somebody to run that fund for us. I ran it the first two funds when they were smaller and our growth platform is going to increase. So I started working with this gentleman. His name is Seksim Suryapa. That is a Thai name. That's his family background. His parents moved here, so they were immigrants, and he's first generation to be born in the U.S., grew up in Ohio, has worked in the tech sector his entire career. He has come from a corp dev, corp strategy background. So most recently, he was running corporate development and strategy for Twitter for three years. So he has a sense of what is Twitter going to do when it comes to crypto? What is Twitter going to do when it comes to NFTs, for example? I'm not going to disclose any of that, but here's a guy who's been working on what does that look like for the next five years. Before that, he did a similar role at Success Factors and at McAfee. Such different companies. Yes, but he brings corp dev and strategy experience of security, software, 
and consumer. And what he really adds to upfront is that quant-driven, analytical, late-stage mentality that he's done his entire career, helping our companies also think through exits, which is an important skill set. But he also has a good sense on how to value companies at exit just to make sure we're staying in our lane of early growth, not late growth. That's great. Well, I'd love to uh, talk to him at some point to learn more about his strategy. With with pleasure. (laughs) Mark, thank you so much. It's always really nice to talk to you. I do hope to come to your event in January. January. Yes, January. I know. (laughs) I'm a little tired, but I'm aware. Awesome. Wonderful. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you back here in a week. Mm